let me just let me confess this to you um, in, in full transparency. It's, I think, I think the Lord has really challenged me and convicted me this week of the sin of Revelation 2 of 2.4. If you're familiar with that, it's a, uh, what, what, what Jesus calls the church of Ephesus on. He challenges one of the churches, and he says this. He says, and he lists all the great things that they've done. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. These are all good things, right? But he says this, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And the Lord has, has, has convicted me um, and brought me to just a place of repentance in that same spirit, just because I feel like in the last, and I shared this with our leadership team and several others, just in the last three or four weeks, a, um, I don't want to say a callousness, but a heavy distraction kind of just on me, you know, and just allowing the, the weight of life and the cares of the world and business and family and all this stuff to just to crowd out this first love, you know, and I just, I felt the weight of that. And I, I bet if you're honest, you probably sensed that in the last two or three weeks on Sunday, you know, it's just like, where's the presence? Where's the fire? Where's the anointing? And those, I felt it. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. But I've just felt just sort of empty, you know, and I, I, I went to the Lord about it. And again, he kind of points me back to this. Um, and he reminded me of a time 22 years ago in college. It was my junior year of college. Really a dark, dark time. You know, I just, I, I really was struggling with depression and struggling with some things and making some poor choices. And, and, um, and I, of course, of course, I've grown up in a, in a Christian religious home. You know, my parents both love the Lord. And, um, and I was a believer. I've been a believer since I was 14, on my 14th birthday. But at this point in college, my junior year, um, the Lord began to do a work of establishing sort of the foundation of my life as a revelation of his love. And I know that that sounds... Maybe that sounds like uninspiring to you, but at the time it was, it was phenomenal to realize. And the Lord said this to me. The Lord said, if you never change from this day on, I'll love you exactly the same. My love for you is not going to diminish because of what you've done. It will not increase because of what you do. And at that point in my life, and even since then, that was such a, it was a revelation in its truest sense of the word, this understanding that might you know, the, the heart of anything that I'm, any life I'm called to live, it's just, it's, it's being loved by the Father. And even to this day, it still comes back to that. Um, you know, and, and the Lord told me this week, he said, Brad, you cannot give what you do not have. You know, and I, that's been a word from the beginning of this church plant to myself and to others is that, you know, God has called us to, um, to be a unique kind of church that, that offers um, the kingdom and offers the, the radical love of God that offers the power and the love of God. But we can't give that if we don't have that. If we're not walking in love and power and authority, we can't give it away. We can have some inspiring sermons and inspiring worship and we can have programs and all these other kind of things, but ultimately we can't give away what we're not inhabiting and indwelling and possessing. You know, so the Lord is, he's bringing me back to this. He's bringing me back to this place of of just, if I'm in the hidden place, if I'm in the quiet place with him, the overflow of that is ministry. The overflow of that is everything. The overflow of that is success in work and in family and marriage and everything else, you know. But if I neglect that, which I, I, I'm in the habit of doing, you know, that's just, some people have a lot of, um, you know, inherent weaknesses in your personality. Mine is I'm just, I'm thick-headed, you know, and I'm slow to learn some things, 
You know, a friend called me on that, sort of sent an email, and, and in kindness, he said, Brad, you've always sort of been slow to act, slow to learn. And I was like, yeah, that's very true. I mean well, but I'm just slow to do it. I don't know what it is, you know, and I just, I wish I could be different than I am, but I'm not, and God loves me the way that I am, and he's changing me, and he's transforming me, you know, but, uh, but just he's drawing me back to this place of saying no to the cares of the world, say no to the distractions of the world, say yes to time with him, and that's the root of things that are going to just overflow and flow out of that, you know, so... I don't know where all that came from. It's just on my mind. I, just, I want to get it out, you know, confess, confessional time to say I'm sorry for that. And I just hold me accountable and pray for me um, and pray for one another in that. So, okay. All right, we're, we're going to be um, in... We're going to be in Galatians this morning. We're going to start something called First We Are a Family. Um, we, we, we talked about this as a church and even you know, way back at the beginning of, of wanting to be a church that, that, that very much inhabits this idea of being a family of God. I know every church says this, every church should say this, every church should do this, right? But it's easy for us not to be this way. It's easy for a church to become an institution or you know, a big corporation and many other things apart from a family. And that's been our prayer, Meg and I and, and, and others in our, you know, from our core. God, let us truly be a family before we are anything before we are, you know, a, a prophetic voice in our community, before we are an army, first let us be a family. That's what matters. And even in the move from Lord's legacy to this place, that was part of our conversation is how do we maintain this family identity? And, you know, there's some practical things that we've wanted to do, you know, keeping home groups going and Friday fellowship and having meals like we're going to have next week. Those are all ways that we, that we want to maintain being a family. Um, so we're going to be looking at just some some spiritual expressions of this, uh, some of the, uh, in the New Testament, some of the ways that, that the Spirit of God um, calls us to be a family and some of, the, some of the different ways that we manifest this as sons. And we're going to talk about that this morning. What does it mean to be a son? Um, and also about being a father and being a mother and, and what these mean. And, and these are less sort of... Um, biological, you know, like mom and dad kind of roles in your home. These are not so much gender roles as they are spiritual roles. You, you, you follow me on this? So um, that's, that's kind of where we're going to be this morning. I'm, I was thinking too about how, about my family and how God formed our family. And God formed our family, what I feel, and I'm, I'm biased about this, I feel it was sort of like the best of both worlds. You know, for 15 years we struggled with infertility. And God brought along these two beautiful daughters of mine, Emma and Josanna, through adoption, through the miracle of adoption. It really was a miracle story. We weren't looking for it. It just sort of both instances, boom, just dropped down in front of us. And it was astonishing to see how God did this, you know. And then we moved here. And then a few years later, all of a sudden, the miracle of natural birth happened to, for us with Cohen and, and Charlotte later on, you know. So you know, and, and I just, I look at this and I'm just, I'm so thankful that, that, that I got to experience sort of both. And I know this is a, this is a, this is a painful topic, especially for some of you that, that have struggled with infertility like we have, you know, and I don't want to say that all these are better. I'm just saying that for me, they both, they both sort of um, represent different expressions of God. In other words, God is a creative God who, who brings things out of nothing, you know, and the fact that he gives parents, not to get graphic, but the fact that he gives mom and dad, you know, the ability to bring something out of nothing, to create life out of themselves, that's an expression of who God is in himself. He is a creator. 
He speaks and being comes out of non-being. And in a very weird kind of limited way, that's what happens when mom and dad create a child. Life comes out of non-life, so to speak. You know, so it's like that's one expression of how God, you know, who he is in himself. But then there's other, other expression of adoption that is just as beautiful and just as meaningful. And it's not, it's not a less version. It's not that at all. I think it is right up there equal in the heart of God as to how he builds families. And I, I'm so thankful that I got to, and I know that we're part of a church that has so many adopted families here. And I'm just like, we kind of like got, you know, all of the best of this, you know, and I'm in, I'm in awe of that. Um, so we're, we're, this is kind of an adoption message, but not so much a call to adopt as it is, what does it mean that we have a spirit of adoption upon us? You with me in this? Okay. All right. I hope I didn't offend anybody with all of this. I hope nobody's feeling like, well, you know, I don't know. If I, if I did, I'm sorry. It's not coming from a heart that wants to do this. What's that? That's right. She's offended. That's right. Give her some, give her some goldfish. All right. She's too young to eat goldfish, right? All right. Cheerios, maybe? I don't know. Okay. Hey, we're going to read in, in Galatians 3. This is sort of going to be the foundation as we, as we move forward. Um, for, for this morning. Galatians chapter 3, you got your analogs right here, or it's up here if you don't have it. Okay, we're, we're in the end of chapter 3, and we're going to go through um, into the beginning of chapter 4. So beginning in, in chapter 3, verse 23, or 26 rather, it says this, pay attention to the words, words matter, words in the word matter. How the Spirit has framed things matter. Here we go. You are all sons of God. Say, sons of God. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Chapter 4. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Y'all say that with me. Full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Since you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. All right, let me pray over this, and then we're going to get into this. Oh, Lord, there's so much in there. Um, help our, 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 our feeble, finite minds to even get a glimpse of, of the reality of this. What does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be an heir? Lord, we're going we're gonna to take you at your word. Your word says it, so we're going to believe it. Lord, help us to understand it in our, in our minds. Help us to actualize it in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Okay, so... Um, it says that we might receive the full rights of sons. The Spirit, God has sent the Spirit of His Son. So there, there's this phrase, adoption to sonship. That's going to show up in a few more of these, of these places. And when I was looking at this on, online, I use like BibleGateway.com. Kind of if I'm at a computer and I'm writing my notes out, I'll have this, you know, 
the website for pulling in different Bible translations. And as I was reading this, there was a little tiny footnote over to the right of, I don't know what verse it was, maybe this uh, verse 5. And I clicked on the footnote and it opened this up. And it said this, it said, adoption to sonship is a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. So that was a footnote. It's talking about, it's referencing something. Let me give you two other references to this idea of being adopted as sons because it's, it, it occurs in a couple other places. And we know one of the, Bible, one of the laws of Bible says the law of repetition. If you see something repeatedly, pay attention to it. And we're going to see this through two, or two other places. So we're going to really pay attention to what the Spirit of God wants us to understand. So Romans 8.15 says this. I'm going to look behind me rather than take the time. Flip this over. It says, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. There's that phrase. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We saw that Abba in Galatians. We're seeing it here again in Romans, all right? And finally, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says this. Let's flip up to Ephesians 1. It says, For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. There it is. Through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. So there, in, in, in Galatians 3, Romans 8, Ephesians 1. So the, 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 our word adoption comes from a Roman word, adoptare, and it means simply to choose. This idea of choosing somebody. And Paul is referencing this idea, this legal um, maneuver of adoption in Roman law. And what makes it, what makes it really difficult in, in, this, in our day and age, it's, it's somewhat easier. Is it, it's not easy, is it, Heather and Megan and those of you that are carried, those of you that have adopted. It's not easy, you know, but there's a pretty straightforward process. In Roman law, adoption was significantly more difficult because of something called the patria potestas. The, the, the law of the father or the rule of the father. And in, this, in our culture, you know, the, the children are, are sort of, um, they have joint custody. The mom and the, and the father both have, um, you know, some, some right and some say-so. In, in Paul's time, in the Roman time, the father had absolute authority, absolute control. You could even say absolute ownership over his family. That was very true of, of his wife as well. She was the property of the father. They couldn't inherit couldn't inherit his property. Uh, the daughters, of course, had no standing apart from who they married to. The father was the absolute sole authority in his home. So even his sons, even the ones born to him, were under this control, under this uh, you know, heavy iron fist of the father. And the idea of adoption, of course, is to move from one patria potesta into another patria potesta, to move from one father to another father, from one household to another household. And it was pretty difficult to do that, but of course, in, in, in Roman law, there was, there was a means of doing that. It's sort of this complicated process of going before the courts and, you know, sort of this symbolic buying and selling of, uh, of the son. Um, and we won't, we won't get into all of that, but at the end of all of that, at the end of this, these, these legal maneuvers involved in adoption, the outcome was something very similar today. The outcome of an adopted son would be he loses all of the rights to his old life. He has no longer has a claim on anything here of his old life. And he gains all of the rights of the new life, all of the rights of the new family he now gains. He's lost the old, he's gained the new. 
Um, the second thing is he is now an heir to this estate. He's no longer an heir to this estate. Now he has full authority. If he's a firstborn son, he's got all the full authority to, to be an heir to this estate. And finally, all the debts are erased. All the debts of the past are erased. And he moves into his new life free and clear of anything in the past. And he is legally and in all, for all intents and purposes, he is absolutely a son. That's very, very much how it is today. There is no legal difference in an adopted child and a, and a natural born child. So here's the question is, why does the word of God go to such lengths to establish this reality? Three different places, spirit of adoption, adoption as sons. Why does the spirit of God go to such, the word of God go to such lengths to get this into our heads that we are adopted as sons? I think this is why. I think because the enemy knows that if he, can, if he can keep us from living in sonship, we'll stay stuck in slavery. And those are, those are sort of the two options that we have. You know, we're under the power of the old Patria Potestas. We are essentially slaves. But what God has done is God has broken that power and he's brought us into his own new family as a new father with his own patria, and he's established as his sons. And I believe that if the enemy can convince us that we're not this, instead we're this, we'll stay stuck in slavery. And the opposite of sonship is slavery. And Paul and, and, and the spirit of the New Testament just wants to reinforce you, church, live under a different reality now. You are sons. You are adopted. There is a spirit of sonship that rests upon you. So I want to think through the implications of that. I want to think through three things that we receive as sons of God. First is this. We have a right to inheritance. We receive inheritance. Galatians 4 says, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. Uh, this, this is later on. I want to talk about it now. Um, in recent, in recent years, maybe in the last 50 or 100 years, there's been, of course, there's always been attacks on God's word, you know, but especially in the last 100 years with the onset of sort of liberal theology, there's been this attack on, on how, how gender exclusive the Bible is and how, you know, how, how patriarchal and how oppressive it really is to women. And this is one of sort of one of the verses that they would point to. And, you know, people that are, don't, aren't, aren't studying this would would, would talk about this. And even some Bible translations would want to put gender-inclusive language in here, you know, and they would say, well, we're really adopted as children of God. Let's remove that sons. That sons is very limiting. You know, you have a spirit of, of, of daughtership as well. And in reality, that's, that's not what Paul was wanting to communicate. We know that, you know, that Jesus was one of the most inclusive people um, you know, of his time. He was bringing women along to, to be his followers, and the women were the, one of the first ones to show up um, at the tomb to, to bear witness to his resurrection. But here's, here's why sonship matters and not just, not just being a general spirit of adoption. Because in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, where in, in the time of Paul and Roman law, the daughters had no legal claim to anything, as we talked about early on. The sons were the ones who had the right to inherit. They were the 
daughters, by and large, were often treated as second-class citizens. They couldn't own property unless, you know, they had to be married in. And, of course, there were some exceptions to that. But by and large, it was the sons who had full authority. So Paul wants to make it very clear, look, you sons have a spirit of sonship, but you daughters as well, you have the same spirit upon you. You have the same right to be adopted as sons of God. You have the same right to be heirs and to inherit all that the Father has. So we, we, the Bible says we have the right to inheritance. What do we get to inherit? You know, when, when, my, when Meg and I sort of reach that point of going on, you know, and it comes time to, to pass, we talked about this two weeks ago with the prodigal son, you know. Um, when it comes time to probate our estate, we've got, you know, how many children do we have? One, two, we have four children, you know. And generally speaking, we'll divide that up um, among the four of them, and they're going to get whatever we have. It won't be a lot, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe 20 bucks each or something like that. But what do we receive as sons of God? We get the full measure of the Father's net worth. Jesus says this in Luke 12. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it gives the Father great pleasure to give you the kingdom. doesn't just say it gives the Father pleasure to give you little bits here and there and just give you a It's the full, God, God says it gives the Father pleasure to give you the full measure of all that he has. We have inheritance for the full measure of what God has. Um, flip back to Romans 8. Romans 8 talks a little bit about this. Um, Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, there's a condition here, if, right? So I like the idea of inheriting. I like the idea of being a co-heir with Jesus. You know, think of, you read through all the descriptions of what heaven is like. Streets of gold and mansions on every corner. Right and the crystal sea and all this other stuff and we know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he's he's the firstborn of all creation. And the Bible says that we now are co-heirs with him. We're going to reign with him. I don't know how that works. I don't know how you have you know a billion people all co-reigning with Jesus. I'm glad I don't have to figure that out. There'd be a space issue, but the Bible says that we're co-heirs. We share in his inheritance. He is our brother. He's the firstborn, but he opens himself up and he says, "All of you, you get to share in my portion of the Father's estate." We're co-heirs with Jesus, it says, but it says, if, if indeed we share in his sufferings. I was like, I want to hit the brakes there. It's like, no, no, hold on. I like, I like sharing in the, it says, if we share in his, in, in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I want to share in his glory, but I don't think I want to share in his sufferings. I want the crown, but I don't know if I want the cross. I want all the good stuff. I want the cattle on a thousand hills, right? That's mine. I have a right to that because I'm a co-heir with Jesus. I have a right to all of the, 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 the wealth of the nations. But God, but, but Paul says, look, if you want this, you also got to share in his sufferings. If you want the crown, you got to go to the cross. So we're inheriting, we, sons are inheriting the same thing that Jesus is. We also are inheriting his suffering. I can tell you, there are times I don't want to do that. Most of the time I don't want to do that. But that's the road. That's where Jesus is going. And if we inherit his suffering, we inherit his glory. If we inherit the sacrificial life that he lives, 
and he draws us in, then we get to inherit all the others. And the Bible also says this. It says the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 says this. He says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You know, I own a business. I know several own businesses. In our business, we do, you know, we do a lot of sort of service-oriented work. We don't sell products. We do service-oriented work, and sometimes we'll have contracts. We're going to do this kind of thing, and we're going to ask a client. We're going to say, we need you to put a deposit down. You know, project is $5,000. We need you to put a $750 deposit down to hold your place and to say, I'm good for this, Right? You guys know what deposits are. If you're renting somewhere, you got to put a deposit down. The Bible says that we have, a, we have a deposit that guarantees this point that God talks about. It's one thing for, God, for Jesus to say, look, you have, you know, you're going to inherit all this as well. You're going to be co-heirs with Jesus. Trust me on this. You don't see any fruit of it, but trust me on it. But he also says, look, I want to give you, I want to give you something that's going to be a hint of what's to come. It's going to sort of hold the place and be a reminder. It's going to be a glimpse. It's going to be a picture of all that you're going to inherit. And it's not just something. It's someone. It's his very self, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So sons receive inheritance. And we have that in here and now in the person of the Holy Spirit and also in the days to come. Second thing is, is that sons have the right to intimacy. We have the right to intimacy. There's a story told sort of back, I'd say 40 years ago, when JFK was in office. And he's in this meeting with some important dignitaries, some significant men from all around the world meeting and talking about important things. And as the story goes, the door suddenly opens and this individual walks in. And the people turn and look at this individual. Don't say a word. This individual just walks in, ignores the people sitting here having this conversation, conversation with the president, the leader of the free world. This individual just makes his way over, goes and sits in the president's chair until the meeting is adjourned. Now, I can't imagine you and I doing that, but that individual was none other than JFK Jr. It was the son of the president himself. He's got a right to go in, to knock on the door. You open it up. Who are you expecting? Not expecting him. Little six-year-old kid comes marching in, climbs up on the president's chair in the Oval Office, has a seat, goes about his business. How can he do this? Can you imagine if I tried to do that today? If I went in, I wouldn't even get to the gate. They would say, who are you? You're a lunatic. We're going to arrest you. If somehow I managed to get into the gate and I made my way to the other, there's a thousand people that are standing in the way saying, no, you cannot come. You cannot come. You cannot come. If for some reason I made my way in to the Oval Office and I found the chair that's there at the desk of the president and I managed to sit in it, how soon would I be quickly you know, snatched up and tackled to the ground and dragged out and put in jail? I can't do this. But the son of the president can. He can go anywhere he wants. We have access to the Father. We have intimacy with the Father. Look at what John, 1 John 3 says. He says, look what manner of love the Father has. The old King James says, bestowed upon us. There are times I love the King James. That's not one of the times. Bestowed is not the right word. I like the other translation that says, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. 
has heaped upon us, has poured out on us, that we should be called sons of God, and that's what we are. Romans 5 says God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this idea of intimacy, this is a, this is a major, and we, you know, I just, I was, sitting here during worship and I was watching you guys worship and listening to the song and I was just overcome by this idea of love. The love of God for us. The love of God that's so undeserved. But he loves us so much. And I began to think of the difference of slaves and sons. Slaves, they're not motivated by love. Slaves are driven by fear. Fear is what motivates slaves. I gotta do the right thing. I gotta obey the master. He's not gonna be happy. He's gonna judge me. He's gonna come along. He's gonna make my life pretty miserable. He's going to wag his finger at me. Some of us view God that way. We see God as this harsh master who has this measuring stick that we have to measure up to all the time. I got to do my thing to make God happy. We're drawn, we're driven by fear, 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 fear. If not fear of God, maybe fear of other people, expectations of other people. That's, that's, that's slavery though. Spirit of slavery is upon us. Bondage again to fear is what the Bible says. He has not made us that way. Instead, he has given us a spirit of adoption by which we cry what? Daddy. Abba. Who in the world, who in the world could think of going to the supreme creator of the world and calling him Daddy? But that's the spirit that we have. Slaves are driven by fear. Sons are drawn by love. I do what my father asked me to do because I love him so much and I know that he loves me and I know that whatever he asked me to do is because he wants the best for me. So even if it's difficult, even if it costs me, I want to please my father because his love for me is so real and so powerful and so all-consuming. You guys, you guys awake this morning? All right, come on. The word of God is good stuff. Listen to this, Sarah Edwards. You know the name Jonathan Edwards, right? Jonathan Edwards was one of the key um, sort of agents of the Great Awakening. So what, 1760s up in New England, right? He, he, he preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Boy, that probably packed the pews out. Man. And by the way, he didn't do a very good job of delivering it from what history says. It says he largely had a manuscript, Took his spectacles off like me, and he just read this manuscript in a very dull, droning kind of voice. And the Spirit of God fell upon the people, and they were on their faces, and revival swept through the nations, swept through America, swept through the colonies. His wife, though, you don't hear a lot about Sarah Edwards. Sarah had her own powerful experience. I love reading about the powerful experiences of these strong men, stronger women. I love reading about the stronger women and the experiences that they have. She says this. She talks about this, this time when she was so inebriated, this is her words, so inebriated by the love of God. Think on that for a minute. Inebriated, drunk, right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on who's been drunk before. I don't want to do that. But Sarah was so drunk by the love of God. Now, she's, not, she's not like a you know, wild-eyed, charismatic. She's not one of these. She's like a, what, a congregationalist, right? She is as starchy as a starchy white shirt in her pew. So drunk by the love of God that she was insensible, insensible for 17 days. I'm not making this up. 
so drunk in the love of God that she was insensible for 17 days. I'm feeling bad for Jonathan having to do all this stuff now in the house for 17 days. He's probably thinking, oh, come on, Lord, can't you just minister to her and get it over with after day two or three? But she's out day one, day two, day three, five, 10, 15, 16, 17 days just out of her mind in the love of God. I want that. I want to be out of my mind in the love of God. I want to be so just consumed with this that like sometimes I just can't even speak straight. Probably wouldn't be good for our business to be on the phone with clients, right? But to be that overcome by the love of God. She says this. She says, I was aware, and she, of course this is, her, this is sort of a characteristic New England sensibility as she writes this. Prim and proper. I was aware of the delightful, delightful sense of the immediate presence of the Lord. And I became conscious of, of his nearness to me and my dearness to him. Now, what in the world did she encounter that knocked her flat on her face? It wasn't a fresh revelation of doctrine. It was the love of God. Intimacy with the Father. And sons have that. We have the right to that. Not when we're good. Listen to me. Hear me. Hear me. Some of us grew up here in this lie. God loves good little boys and girls. Anybody hear that lie growing up? It's a lie from the pit of hell. Hold on. That's true. But God loves bad little boys and girls just as much. He loves wicked little boys and girls all the same. And the enemy wants to convince us that, that his intimacy towards us is conditional upon what we do or how we live or what we think or how we act in the world. And God says, oh, no, no, no. You're a son. My little boy down here. About 45 minutes ago, with the help of a little cohort in crime, decided to see what would happen if they stuffed a lot of paper towels down into the men's urinal and flushed it again and again and again. So as worship is going on, we're hunting around for our children. Where's Gus? Where's Cohen? I hear the sound of laughter and splashing in this little men's room right here. Walk inside, their pants are soaking wet. Shoes are off. There's a good half an inch of water on the floor. Just look on their face and begin to blame somebody. Oh, it wasn't me. I thought, not me. I walked in. My anger was there and it came out. But it so quickly dissipated. God's anger lasts for a moment. Morning may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Why? Because God's default towards you is just lavish love and grace and intimacy. He pulls you in as a son. Women, 
he pulls you in as a son. Sons have inheritance, sons have intimacy. Finally this, sons walk in authority. We have authority as sons. You could even say and power. Authority and those two words in the Greek, they often go together. You know, authority is exousia and power is dunamis and both of them often seem to come together. You know, power is the expression of that authority. Sons walk in authority. And for sons, this is important, sons, authority flows out of our relationship. It flows out of intimacy. How do we have authority in the world? Because we're sons of God, because we have a relationship with the Father. From Jesus to us, or from, from the Father to Jesus, authority is given and transferred down. Jesus says in Matthew 28, he says, all authority, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, is what he says. So Jesus submits, Jesus comes down as a son in the flesh, self-limiting is what he's done. And he says, all authority on heaven and earth, all the authority of the Father has been transferred to me. Therefore, you now go and preach to all the nations. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he transfers this. And later on, he says this. Um, well, I'll read, I'll read it later. So authority flows from relationship, from the Father to the Son, from the Son to us through the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're in this line also, power, fl- power flows from authority. We talk a lot about power, especially if you're from sort of the, you know, maybe more Pentecostal or charismatic streams. If you're from that, you've heard power and authority thrown around a whole lot, right? We love to sort of minister in power. We want to minister in authority. You know, we want to speak to demons. We want the demons to leave. We want to speak healing. We want healing to happen right away, you know? We want to speak with, with boldness and power. And power, though, it flows out of authority. How, how, how can the disciples have the power that they have? Look at this. It says, um, it says in Mark 3, he said, He sent them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples. He sends them out with authority to preach and the power to drive out the demons. So the power comes from the authority. And one of the things that I'm learning as I'm swimming in these waters more is that I don't, I, I don't need to just wait for the power to come, especially if we're doing practical things like healing, right? Laying hands and healing. I don't wait for myself to feel electricity or to hear this booming voice in my head. I don't wait for there to be some manifestation of power. I simply step out. I act on my authority first, and often the power follows that. The power may not always be there. The authority is always there. We always have the authority to pray for healing. I don't care what theological tradition you're from. That's just that's basic gospel stuff. All of us have the authority to do the things that Jesus told us to do even if we don't feel like we've got the power. So we have, we have the authority to do these things. Um, so and part of the problem, problem is, we, you know, it's not a matter of does the church have it, it's a matter of we're, just, we're not walking in it. And I, this is a whole other message. We're going we're gonna to table some of this for a later time because this is like a couple of weeks in itself. What does it mean when Jesus says, I give you authority? What does that really mean? How do we hold power and authority in the right way? without losing our minds. 
And we've seen people that have lost their minds when they start talking about power and authority. It gets ugly and it gets self-serving. But sons, we have authority because of our position before the Father. We don't have authority because somebody laid their hands on us at a conference and imparted it to us. Right? We don't have authority because we read some book by some charismatic leader. We don't have authority because we, you know, we prayed some prayer or had some kind of emotional experience. We have authority simply because we are in a relationship with the Father. Every one of you has authority as a son of God. Now, you may not be exercising it. You may not be walking in it. It's a different thing altogether, but you've got it. And at a later point, I want to talk about how do, we, how do we walk in this? How do we exercise authority? And the crazy thing is that we are not only have authority, but we're under authority all at the same time. You know, Jesus was under authority, right? He said, oh, I can only do the things that I see the Father doing. He didn't do anything out of himself. He was watching and, and, and imitating. He was looking at the Father, hearing the Father's heart, and doing it. So we are under authority as well, but we have it also. Sons receive inheritance. Sons have intimacy. Sons walk in authority. Slaves, not so much. Slaves don't have this. Sons are greater than slaves. We have a life. God offers us a life of sonship. He chooses us. He picks us. He says, I want that one. Let me close with a story. Brian, where are you? Come on up. So first we are a family begins with this foundation. You are sons. You have a spirit of sonship upon you. Moms and dads, you have it. The full access to all that the Father has. We are adopted in. We are bought at a price. Let me close with this story. Lee Strobel tells this, he tells this story. He says, shortly after the Korean War, some 60 years ago, a Korean woman had an affair with an American soldier. Brian, have you heard this? You don't know. All right. I'm just making it up as I go. So no, really not. It's a good, it's a true story. After the Korean War, a Korean soldier had an affair with an American woman. She got pregnant. He went back to the United States, did his thing. She never saw him again. She gave birth to a little girl. And this little girl, of course, was um, biracial, half Korean, half American, and she looked vastly different than all the other Korean children. She had sort of a, a pale face, um, light-colored curly hair. And in that culture at that time, um, mixed-race children were profoundly ostracized by the community. In fact, many women chose to kill their babies at birth if they saw them to be this way rather than subject them to such rejection in their life. This woman didn't want to do that, though. She tried to raise her little girl as best she could, kept her close by and tried to nurture her. For seven years, she tried um, to do that until the rejection finally was too much. And she did something that I don't think anybody in this room would ever imagine doing. She took the little girl and put her out on the street. The little girl was ruthlessly taunted by the people. They called her the ugliest word in the Korean language. Tuki meant alien devil. They taunted her as she went around 
the streets begging for money. They chased her away. And it didn't take long for the little girl to begin to draw some conclusions about herself based on the way that people treated her. So for two years, she lives on the streets. She finally heard, somebody said, hey, you know, you, you can't stay out here. You're getting older. You're going to get really hurt. You need to make your way to this orphanage. Go there and see if they'll take you in. She heard about the orphanage. And um, she came and they agreed to take her in. She lived there for several years. And one day word got around that an American couple was coming to this orphanage to adopt a little boy. And the whole orphanage was abuzz with this news. Everybody was excited. Who would it be? You know, who would they choose? Who would the little boy be? And the little girl was excited too for, 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 um, to see who would, who would be chosen. And she spent her time helping to get ready, cleaning the little boys, you know, washing their faces and giving them baths and wondering which one would be adopted. And finally, the day came and the couple came. And this is what the, little girl, the, the girl later would recall. She says this. She says, it was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw the man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby. I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face, and I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them, she said. She said, he saw me out of the corner of his eye. Let me tell you, I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I had scars, body full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me and began rattling away something in English. Didn't understand what he said at the time. She said, later on, I, I learned the words that he had spoken. She said, I looked up at him and he took this huge hand and put it on my face. began to say these words. He said, later on, they said, he picked me up and he said, I want this child. This is the one for me. Picked him up, took him home. New life, new family, new destiny. Those of you that have adopted, you know what that is. You know what that's like. This is what God has said to us. This is what God does to us, you know. God doesn't come looking for the, the ones who have it all together. Man, he wants the scrawny ones, spiritually speaking. <laughs> ones full of lice and worms and scars. He wants the alien devils. He chooses them and he says, you are now a son. You're a daughter. Full rights, full privileges. Everything I have is yours. You have a new name. You have a new destiny. You have a new family. All of it. Church, that changes everything for me. I don't know about you. That changes everything for me. That changes my whole view of the world. My whole view of life. That changes how I view tomorrow. And the next day. That changes how I treat my wife. How I treat my children, hopefully. It should. I want it to. I want it to change it more and more. To realize that it's just, I'm a son. I can't do anything else. I'm a son. I'm not going to be any closer to him than I am right now. I'm not going to earn any more favor than I have right now. I'm not going to get any more love out of him than I have right now. All right, y'all, let's stand up.
as we move forward as a church, I want to pray this over you. We're going to ministry time here. Chuck, I want to let you come and give some of these words. I got them on my phone. Um, take these. I'll let you read these in a minute and kind of intro us into ministry time. As we move forward as a church, this reality is absolutely essential. Before we are a family, we have a spirit of sonship. Because if we don't have that, we don't have anything. But if we have that, we have everything. So Father, I pray, King's Church and those, our guests, our friends that are here, Lord, we receive this. We receive this promise this morning. We receive the spirit of adoption. We receive you, Abba, as our Father. And all that it means, we receive the inheritance that you've offered to us. We receive the intimacy that you offer to us. We receive the authority that you're calling us to walk in. Root us, Lord. We bless your name, Lord Jesus.